If you would please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Just a reminder that uh, there are Bibles behind every seat, and if somebody would like one, does not have one, those are Northridge Life's gifts to you. Feel free to take them. Today, we'll be reading from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. This is Jesus feeds the 5,000. Hear the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Thus says the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for the word. We thank you for its objectivity, Lord God, that it is not subject to our whims, our interpretations, our our uh, God opinions. Lord, it's so much more highly exalted than any of those things. So, Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to give us the truth. We thank you, Lord, that we see in your word that you are one that looks on us who have so little, nothing of which to boast, and you have compassion on us, Lord. And, and God, out of that tremendous compassion that you have for us flows tremendous, amazing provision. So, Lord, we thank you for that. God, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, we would be instructed, that we would be convicted, that we would be transformed by the truths we find here, Lord. We pray that our ears would be opened by an action of the Spirit of God to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray for my own stammering tongue, Lord, my own uh, wavering thoughts, Lord, that they would be focused on what you want to say to your people, Lord, and that they would, in that message written 2,000 years ago, would come uh, out clearly, Lord God, and, and that the people would hear and their hearts would be able to bend towards your word, Lord. I thank you for that. And so, God, just be with us today, the hearers and the speaker, Lord, as we engage with your word. We ask all this in the name of the mighty Savior, Jesus our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. 
Hey, before we get started, I want to say just one real quick thing. I got a big surprise uh, coming into the church today. I looked up and saw one of my favorite people in the world standing in the foyer, and that is Leslie Walt. Uh, Leslie is here with us today. Leslie is our missionary from Austria. She heard the preaching was really good, so she flew all the way from Austria just to get get a taste of it. So uh, obviously kidding, but we're so glad to have her. She's here um, just kind of helping out and doing some grandma time with her grandkids. And uh, I didn't know she was coming. So grateful to have her. And that just wanted, uh, led me also to want to thank you. Uh, last week we received our second quarter missions offering. And you guys, we told you the need and you came out swinging. And um, we collected um, not only our need, but we collected about half of what we need for the third quarter. And so I want to just thank you guys. Yeah, give yourselves a hand. That was amazing. So very grateful for your generosity. Don't let off the gas. We need to make sure we hit our our goal for this next quarter. And so just keep giving the missions. And uh, we just thank you for that. And it's kind of neat to see Leslie here right after that. So you can uh, she can tell you a little bit about what they do. And, and uh, so we'll maybe we can talk her into doing that next week, perhaps. OK, fantastic. So um, two weeks ago when we're in our series in Mark, we looked at at um, Mount Mark six. We've been in Mark six for a few weeks now. And we looked that week at uh, verses 7 through 13. Now, if you'll recall, this is where Jesus commissions his 12 disciples to go throughout Galilee. And, and he sends them specifically to proclaim the same message of the kingdom that he had been proclaiming since chapter 1. He sends them endued with miraculous power so that they too, like they've seen him do, can heal the sick, they can cast out demons. And so this basically amounted to a trial run um, for their apostolic ministry that would follow after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So what we find in the verses following is that their mission uh, that they had been sent on by Jesus was very, very successful. And Mark tells us in the story that we looked at last week that it was so successful that even Herod, who was Rome's appointed leader over Galilee, had heard what Jesus is doing. And, and in hearing what Jesus is doing, he, being a wicked man, he developed a superstition about who Jesus was. He thought he was a resurrected John the Baptist who Herod had had uh, beheaded to appease his conniving wife and and he thought this is it you know this guy's doing miracles and 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 casting out demons so surely he's coming to exact revenge on me for what he'd done this is just pure superstition so in today's text that Jared read us Mark picks up the narrative and he tells us that the 12 have now returned to Jesus they've completed their mission and they have come to give an account to Jesus of what they did and what they taught on their journey. Now, the Bible doesn't stop here for a lot of commentary in Mark, but I want you to, I want you to pause and think about what they just did. Jesus gave them commands. He, he told them to go and preach his message and do his works. And then they come back and he's, they're giving a report. And when I read that this week, I, I was struck once again by the reality that you and I must not forget that a day is coming, 
When we'll all be called back to Jesus to give a thorough accounting of everything that we have been commanded by him to do and to proclaim. We all will give account for that. And there, there should be some pause in us when we realize that that is a reality. That is a coming day that we'll, that we'll all face. And, and you ask yourself as you're sitting there, when you are called to sit at the feet of Jesus and give your report, will you do it with joy or will you do it with sorrow? Well, it depends on one major factor, and that is your faithfulness in doing what Jesus has commanded So when you're there, will you be like the 12 who are excitedly telling Jesus of how you faithfully advanced and how you saw the hand of God made manifest in power and glory? Or when Jesus asks probing questions on that day, will you have to recount a story of apathy and laziness and disobedience? Paul paints a a really clear picture of this day for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 11. He says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as only, but only as through fire. And so we know that it's really important that we are now in this time, this phase of our existence is the time to prepare a testimony for the Lord of faithfulness. Now, getting back to the story, because of the exhaustion and also the exhilaration that this trip must have produced in the twelve, Jesus invites them to go with him, leaving the crowds, leaving the villages, leaving the ministry, and retreat to the wilderness where they can reflect and relax and fellowship with Jesus. We're told, once again, Mark is kind of returning to this theme as he's done over and over again, we're told that the crowds... Uh, or Jesus' popularity with the crowds at this point, had reached kind of a fever pitch. And so that, that he, the Mark gives us this detail. He said, no one can even sit down for a proper meal because of the constant bombardment of human need. And Matthew indicates in his account of the same story that there's a secondary uh, reason for the sabbatical that, that they were about to take, and that was the grief that followed the execution of John the Baptist. Now think about that. John the Baptist was the close cousin of Jesus. But more than that, he was the one who many of the disciples of Jesus had followed before they followed Jesus. In fact, John was the one who had introduced them to Jesus. So you can imagine hearing of this tragic, unjust death of John the Baptist, there would have been some grief. And so Jesus is pulling them aside uh, on that basis as well as the basis of the success of their trip. And so Mark tells us that they got in the boat and they cruised along the shore of Galilee 
until they came to a place that, that uh, was well suited for them to spend a few days recuperating and meditating on what they'd done and receiving further encouragement, further instructions from Jesus. Now, so today we're going to break this text down like this. We're going to take notice of the great compassion that Jesus has for both his disciples and his people, or and the people. And then we're going to see the great unbelief of the disciples in light of these incredible obstacles that they face. And lastly, we're going to see the great provision that only Jesus can supply. So the first evidence that we find in this text of Christ's great compassion is directed not towards the crowds, but toward the twelve. Now, people often speak, I hear this all the time, people often speak of their desire to be used by God for some purpose. But when Usually, outside of the context of God, usually when we talk about someone using us, it's not usually in a positive context, is it? I mean, we don't use that positively. No one likes to be used by their employer, used by their spouse, used by their friends, used by their church. And so instead of saying, I want to be used by God, I want to be used by God, is there a better way for us to understand Christ's interaction with our lives than to say, I just want to be used by him? Now, I know what you mean by that. I know what you mean. But think about language and the importance of words. Let's let's try on a different word to explain exactly what we mean by that. If you look at First John, John's first epistle... He introduces his epistle and the purpose of it with these words in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, that which we have seen and heard. Now, what is he talking about there? That he's seen the ministry of Jesus. He saw the healings, all the miracles. And what did he hear? He heard the message of the kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. That, that was, he's saying, this is what we've seen. This is what we've heard. And he's saying, we, we proclaim this also to you so that you might, you too might have fellowship with us. And then he explains what he means by that. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Jesus does not save you to use you. Jesus saves you to fellowship with you. It's not simply for assigned service. You're not drones or worker bees that He just kind of sends out to do stuff. He saves you for fellowship. And and the service that we're pleased to do for him is born first out of love. First out of, out of the, the enjoyment of being with him, being in his presence. He's not as interested in using us as he is just being with us. When the disciples returned to report what God had done through their labor, Christ didn't say, that's great. That's great. Now, strike while the iron's hot. The best time to make a sale is right after the last sale. Get back out there. Produce some more results. Get me some bigger crowds. No! He had something else entirely different in mind. My experience, 30 years in ministry, my experience and hundreds of conversations with other believers lead me, leads me to believe that most Christians 
think Jesus' attitude toward us is that our worth to him is determined only by our productivity, our results, our gospel output. But if that's true, what do you do with scriptures like these? Psalm 23, verse 2. Everyone knows this one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. How about Isaiah 30, uh, 30, 15? In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Would our Christian lives be much more successful and consistent if we understood really what it was that Jesus was after? Fellowship, not not just exhaustive service, fellowship. And I tell you, when you get that, when you understand that, fellowship gives birth to the most successful, productive service you will ever offer the Lord. It starts with fellowship. It always starts with fellowship. So if your idea is Jesus is just wanting me to get back to work and do something big and produce results and change the world then what is your understanding of grace? Where does it, what does it even mean to have grace? What is the understanding that you have of the power by which we contribute anything to God's kingdom? It's not born of me. It's not born of you. It's born by the indwelling of the Spirit working through the gospel. What what do we contribute to God's message? What do we contribute to His cause? What is our usefulness, any usefulness whatsoever that we have to Christ, what is it rooted in? It's rooted in true, honest, consistent, persistent fellowship with Him. In His great compassion, Jesus invited the twelve to just be with Him. After their service and their, and, and he just wants them to enjoy close fellowship with him, meditating on his love and on his power, to hear his voice and bask in the light of his tender smile. And this, by the way, is not something for a group of 12 guys 2,000 years ago. Do you know why you should have come here this morning? To return to the scriptures? Do you know why you should spend time both corporately and individually in his word and in his worship and in prayer? It's for the same reason. Just to be with him. Not to amp up for something. If you spend time with him, you'll be amped up for something. But the, but the fellowship is its own reward. No matter what you do after it. It's why we're invited to return to his word, to spend time in the worship of his majesty. All right, but here's where the the story takes a dramatic turn. That that left turn at Albuquerque that Bugs Bunny always talked about missing. While their boat was heading to that desolate place, and everyone's talking about how awesome this vacation is going to be, the sabbatical, many of the crowds that have been just dogging Jesus and his disciples saw them. They watched the boat launch. 
And instead of just saying, well, they'll be back. No, no, no. They ran on foot to meet the boat and ran so fast, they actually got to its final destination even before Jesus and the disciples arrived there. They, they got there, they're thinking, hey, this is time we're going to get to unwind, and they land in front of a massive crowd that has run along the shore of the, of the sea to meet them there. Now, Let's get real. Think about yourself. If this happened to you on your vacation, a lot of, we have a lot of people on vacation today. We'll have a lot more before the summer's over. If this were you, would you feel interrupted? Would you feel as though your privacy was invaded? Ginger and I are taking vacation in, in um, a couple of weeks. I love everybody here. I do. I don't want to find you there when I get there. I do not want to get to Alabama or Florida and find you just waiting there to meet me. Can you imagine how they must have felt? Would they send the crowds away so that they could finally enjoy some respite? Would they say, hey, guys, guys, come on. This is our vacation. Make an appointment. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. It's not what we read, is it? Look at this. Look at verse 34 again, Mark chapter 6. When he, that's Jesus, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. This is now evidence number 1,682 that I am not Jesus. He had great compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When Jesus climbs out of, out of the boat, he's not filled with indignation. He's not filled with regret. He's not filled with frustration. He felt great compassion. The same compassion he extended to his exhausted disciples, he now extends to this massive crowd. Though he called the disciples away for a time of rest, he looks into the faces of these people, all of them who had either been impacted by his ministry or the, uh, the ministry of the disciples as he sent them out. And he can see that they're hungry, they're, their souls are longing, and they want more teaching, they want more miracles, they want more deliverance. Whatever it is that Jesus can offer, they have come looking for it. Of course, they're breaking all social norms. You don't follow a guy on vacation. They, they abandoned, or, or they, they, they violated all the cultural boundaries. They ignored the need of Jesus and his disciples for restoration. Just, just threw it all out the window. Jesus, looking at them, remembers been dealing for six chapters now with the men who are supposed to be their shepherds and he has found them wanting he remembers how they've been abandoned by their priests and by their teachers how they've been just bombarded and overladen with rules and regulations and the result is that these poor people are left hungry they're starving for true spiritual meat, real spiritual nourishment. And he imagines them as sheep who have been left to wander the cliffs 
by their shepherds who were supposed to feed them, care for them, take care, take care of them, give them medical care if necessary. All the things that shepherds are supposed to do, they've just been abandoned. They're like wild now. They're like feral sheep just out on the mountains. And perhaps I wonder if Jesus, seeing this before him, thought of Ezekiel's prophecy of his coming ministry. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 34, you really ought to go home and read Ezekiel 34. It's all about the coming shepherd. But he says in this part, he says, I myself, speaking for God, I myself will will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And Jesus is standing there with this great crowd, so hungry, so needy, and he's going to fulfill that prophecy. Jesus didn't chasten them for seeking him out and, and, and interrupting their rest. Mark says that he began to teach them many things. And so standing there looking at the crowd, compassion welling in his heart, he does what he always does throughout the book of Mark. He opens the word. He begins to teach them. He, he knows that what they need more than anything else they have come for is the scriptures, is the truth, is the gospel, the, the, the message of the kingdom. And that's what he does. He teaches them many things. Matthew actually does add to us. He says that he healed their sick. But the main point is that he did not turn them away. They found in Jesus exactly what it was that they needed Now we're in the next phase of this drama. As Jesus continued feeding the spirits of these sheep with the gospel and ministering to their physical needs, the disciples noticed, hmm, it's getting pretty late. Uh, Jesus, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere out here. And the people had brought nothing to eat. I mean, think about it. They saw the boat leave and they just took off around the lake. They didn't, they weren't worried about lunch or dinner at that time. They just wanted to get to Jesus. So they show up, no provisions whatsoever, completely unprepared. They brought nothing to eat and, and the disciples start to kind of calculate the, the possible risks of that. You know, they gotta, they walked all the way there. They gotta walk all the way home. If they don't get something to eat, then they might just faint on the way. They might just pass out from, you know, hunger. And so they suggest to Jesus, okay, Jesus, you were incredibly compassionate. Let's just, though, because there's a dire need here, let's just wrap this meeting up. Let's just shut this down. I'm sure that everyone that you were able to minister to is very grateful. Let's just wrap it up. Let's let's send the people to the farmhouses and to the small villages around here and let them buy for themselves some food. But Jesus, as you just read, had an entirely different idea. Uh, the, the implication of the text is that these guys, while Jesus is preaching, maybe laying hands on people, they interrupt him right while he's speaking. It, it's kind of like if Gabe were to come up right now and say, you know, that the the children need Kleenex or something while I'm preaching, you know, or something like that. It'd be kind of like that. And I've told him not to do that. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, 
But, but it was just like that. It was just right in the middle. And so Jesus wheels around on these 12 guys that are panicking because they're going to have, you know, a, a, a you know, massive dropping out of people who have low blood sugar soon. And he turns around on them and he says, you give them something to eat. Are you kidding? Are you serious, Jesus? Jesus put the responsibility of feeding this massive crowd squarely on the shoulders of his disciples. Just letting that sink in for just a second. Thousands of people. You give them something to eat. They hadn't brought enough provisions to feed this multitude. Not even close. They, they wouldn't check the coffers. They said, what do we have? What, what kind of cash do we have on hand? They found it wasn't even enough to buy each one of them a tiny morsel. And in that moment of tremendous need, legitimate, honest, overwhelming need, the disciples forgot how that Jesus had just sent them out to preach. And do you remember what he told them when he said, when he said, sent them out to preach? He said, take nothing for your journey. Take nothing for your journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Every one of their needs, they would later report, was met by God on their journey. Every single one. They lacked absolutely nothing. And so now Jesus has brought them to the edge of the precipice and saying, where is your faith? You provide something for them. Somehow they were able to trust for their own simple needs on the journey. I mean, there were two of them to take care of. You know, they went out two by two and and they were able to, to do that. We don't read of any doubt. Simple needs, simple group, simple size. But now the size of the crowd saw them answering the great compassion of Jesus with great unbelief on their, on, on, on their behalf. And why do they do that? Because of the obstacle, because of the obstacles that seem so insurmountable, the impossibilities. Have you found that to be true? You know, that, that, uh, you know, that the smaller the thing is that God requires of you, the, the more faith you have to do it? Is that fair? But when things get large, when they get inflated and expanded, and, and it gets a lot more difficult, does it? I can I can trust God for me and Ginger, but if you bring 5,000 people over the house i got to feed, I might have a little bit more difficulty with that. I guess I'm the only one. It's great to be in the midst of a people of such great faith. So what does Jesus do? Tells them to feed him, and then he says, take inventory of what you have. Jesus knew what they had. Jesus knows everything. But he wanted them to realize more deeply how helpless the situation would be when addressed by their own power, their own wisdom, their own resources. And listen to me, whenever you address the problem with your own power, wisdom, and resources, there's no hope. You're sunk. You're lost. You will be saying, send the crowds away, Jesus. 
So they come back, they report to Jesus, they have five loaves of bread. You guys know this story. There were 5,000 men in the crowd. So that means that there was one loaf for every thousand men. They had two fishes, though, too, so they weren't going to starve to death. They could split those fishes, one fish for each 2,500 men. So it wasn't nothing. But it was not nearly enough for the tremendous need before them, obviously. Surely, now that they've laid it out to Jesus, said, Jesus, this is all we got. We've searched this entire crowd. This is all we could come up with. Surely now Jesus will come to his senses and send them away. But Jesus does no such thing. Instead, in the face of that response, if you look back at the text in Mark 6, Jesus says, how much do you got? Five loaves, two fishes. And he says, get the crowds ready. Jesus, did you hear what we said? Did you hear what we were bringing to you? Get the crowds ready. How many times have we been ready to throw in the towel on the, because the thing that Jesus told us to do seemed impossible? I'm not talking about some prosperity gospel wealth management thing. I'm talking about Jesus looks at you and says, mortify that one sin. Put to death that pesky sin that you keep making excuses for. He said, Jesus, all I have is my traumatized childhood. Jesus, all I have is, is a culture that bombards me with, with, you know, all kinds of negative images. It's all I've got. Jesus says, share the gospel with a hostile, hostile friend, that hostile family member. And you say, Jesus, you don't understand. They're, they're, they're cruel and alcoholics and whatever else. And all I've got is, you know, my little bitty faith and my few scriptures I have memorized. And Jesus says, pray in faith for something big. Something that will bring great glory to God and advance the kingdom. And we are too quick to abandon all hope. And stories like this in the New Testament should holler at us to say, let your faith rise. Because when Jesus tells us to do something in the scriptures, we should get ready. We should prepare ourselves. Knowing that he is about to intervene, it doesn't matter how short the supply, how irrational the odds are, just watch what Jesus will do when you take what little you have and put it into his hands. So the disciples set the people in rows. Now the Greek word describing the groups that they sat in paints a picture of like rows of, of vines on a hillside uh, or like the, the uh, furrows in a, in a garden that are laid out. And this enabled them not only to get an accurate count of the crowd, but it also enabled them to make sure just going down the line that every single person was fed. No one was going to be left out. Though the twelve had every reason not to believe, every reason, or I'm sorry, every reason to believe, they didn't believe. 
But what they did do, because uh, I don't want to just bash them. We're all just as guilty of this as those 12 guys were. But what they did do is they brought what they had and they put it in Jesus' hands. Now listen to me. Let me shock you if you think you're some kind of spiritual superman. You won't always have perfect faith. You won't always be free from the cold, chilly winds of doubt. But in these moments, we have to determine to put what we have and what we know or think we know into the hands of Christ and watch what he will do. And this is what we read, verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Now notice here five things that Jesus did. He took the loaves, he looked up, he blessed, he broke, he distributed. First, Jesus took the loaves from his disciples. They took them as they brought him. And and some of us, I know I'm really hammering this point, but it's important, never see God's intervention because we've never learned how to take what we have and put it trustingly in his hands. Instead, as an alternative to that, we fret. We worry about what little we have. We, we hoard it because we're afraid that we won't have enough if we don't hoard it. We, we clutch onto it with, with tightly gripped fists. But faith, see, the very nature of faith is because of a greater trust in something else as just letting go, releasing our grip. You know how you got saved by faith? Because you had control of your life. Or at least you thought you did. You came to Christ and he said, I can save you. I can forgive your sins. And you released your grip. You gave up. And he saved you. Faith is letting go. Next, Jesus looked up to heaven. Now, there's no argument that Jesus was fully God. But here... We see him acting in his human nature. And what is he doing for the benefit of his disciples? He is demonstrating the same dependency on his father that his disciples should have demonstrated in him. He turned his attention to the father's goodness and the father's power to demonstrate for these men where the true source of their supply was. See, they thought the supply that they needed was in the villages. They thought it was in the farmhouses. But no, Jesus looked up to where the real supply was. Third, he blessed the loaves and the bread. What is he doing here? He's verbalizing this dependence on God. R.C. Sproul speculates that he might have used the traditional Jewish blessing that Jews would pray over their meals. It goes like this, Praise be to you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth, and who provides for all that you have created. And can you imagine those words just flowing out of Jesus' lips with such power? And then, next, fourthly, he broke the loaves. That breaking of the loaves foreshadowed the night when Jesus would break a loaf, give it to his disciples and saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Here in this story in Mark 6, he feeds hungry people with natural food supernaturally. But really he's 
setting them up to see something much more deeply. If you read John's account in John chapter 6, you'll see this, but he's setting them up to understand something more deeply. He tells them in John chapter 6, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And then lastly, he distributed the bread and the fish through the hands of his disciples. He had just in their presence wrought a tremendous miracle. And yet his faltering disciples, his doubting disciples, still shared in the joy of taking the great evidence of his compassion to the masses. And the Bible says he t- they took that evidence of his compassion, this, this miraculous bread and fish. And the Bible tells us that all of them, the entire crowd of them, all of them ate and were satisfied. There was more than enough. No one left there hungry. We're told that they took up 12 baskets of leftovers. Nothing that Jesus provides gets wasted. Perhaps there were others who would benefit down the road from this act of of Jesus' great compassion. They too would eat and be satisfied. We're also told that the crowd consisted of 5,000 men. Now the Greek word used here means biological males, which is important because we've lost all knowledge of what a man or a woman is in our culture. But here it means biological males. And Matthew adds this little tag, he says, besides women and children. So in actuality, if it's 500 men, um, the crowd could have been as many as fifteen or 20,000 people. This would have been a massive uh, thing that many people would have seen and testified of. So you have Jesus' great compassion... And, and the conflict of the disciples' great unbelief. But do you see that Jesus' great provision, enough for possibly 20,000 people, flows from his great compassion? Sometimes we think we've got to, like, charge heaven and beg God just to take care of us. No. Saints, listen. Jesus loves you. If you are in Christ, Jesus loves you. And and his provision for you flows from his great compassion for you. You don't have to like, you know, worry whether God is going to do what he's promised to do. David said this in the Psalms. He said, I have been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. God is a provider for those on whom his compassion rests. And he often does so. He often provides in spite of our great unbelief and our dullness of heart. The Bible tells us his mercy endures forever. And it's always in great supply. I love Psalm 103, verse, beginning in verse 11. It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion 
to those who fear him. If you're a believer today, it's because and only because the good shepherd saw you. Saw you when you were helpless. Saw you when you were directionless, unshepherded. And he was moved with great compassion for you. And with a steadfast love that is as high as the heavens are above the earth, he removed your sins and your transgressions from you. And he has become, to those who trust in his name, he has become a father, a rich supply of whom's table, at whose table there is, and it will never be withheld from his beloved children. In offering you the real bread that is his life, you have more than enough. You will never exhaust the supply of his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his compassion that is yours for the taking. There's enough grace, enough mercy, enough forgiveness, enough wisdom, enough fellowship for your every possible need. So today, as the people of God, let us give thanks for the great compassion of Jesus that drove him to the cross. In spite of our rebellion, in spite of our unbelief, where he opened up a fountain of grace that flows eternally to all who are thirsty for it. It's a great provision that is given for his children freely. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you that you looked on us with compassion. Thank you that you rescued us from our own destruction, Lord, and our own hunger, our own need. Lord, we would have fainted on the way had you not provided true food for us in the breaking of your body and the spilling of your blood. So, Lord, for that we thank you. God, we pray that as we, many of us, have been walking and working and fasting from the supply that you have, the great provision that you provided for us. Lord, I pray that we would return to the table today and receive from your goodness, receive from your grace, and that we would all eat and be satisfied. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Wow, just think about the picture of what we're about to do that Jesus gave us on that hillside in Mark 6. That he took the, the, the symbol of his own body and broke it so that we would know that there is a boundless supply of grace. He is not, you know, wanting to save you by the hair of your chinny chin chin. He's wanting you to come to the table and feast and be satisfied. So are you finding your satisfaction in Christ today? If yes, I, were, I, I just am so glad. If no, then I, I, I just ask you to return to the table of the Lord today and find your satisfaction in Christ alone. Nothing else is going to do it. Your provision is never going to be enough. You need what only he can supply. Paul says... 
for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for the joy of being yours, the joy of feasting at your table, the joy of realizing what these symbols mean, Lord, and and being connected to the reality of what they signify through faith in you. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that you would just um, allow us to return by faith to this table in our hearts and, and feast on you, feast on your word, feast on your truth, feast on your power, feast on your glory. Lord, we pray that we would just enjoy the satisfaction that we as the the people on that hillside would be would would uh, just eat daily and be satisfied in Jesus name. Amen. If you would place your hands on receiving position, I want to just speak this benediction over you. John 6:48 says, "I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died." This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.